Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, March 5th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, when a politician tells you something's not a problem and instead calls it a challenge, it's probably a problem. This week, President Biden's Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, admitted that what is happening on America's southern border is at least a challenge. He called it acute and stressful, but it's not a problem or a crisis or a disaster in the making. What we do know is that twice as many people tried to cross the southern border illegally in January of this year compared with January a year ago. And President Biden's advisors told him this week that the number of migrant children crossing the U.S. border this year without their parents will likely far exceed the previous record. Also, the battle for the future of the Republican Party continues, and we'll look at one 2024 contender, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, who is calling for something called common good conservatism. I'm not sure what that means, but Phil Wegman, who talked to the senator this week, is here to explain. And the House has passed a new bill that would nationalize certain rules for the ways elections are handled. It's called the For the People Act. And how it fares in the Senate will tell us a lot about whether we've entered an era of bipartisan cooperation and handholding across the aisle or whether we haven't. Joining me to sort through all of this are some of my colleagues from Real Clear Politics. Tom Bevin is president and co-founder. Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief. And Phil Wegman, White House reporter. So, Tom, let me start with you. Axios reported this week that uh, the president was advised that we need 20,000 beds on the border to house unaccompanied minors. And the administration's own projection calls now for 117,000 unaccompanied children to enter the U.S. this year. So is this a problem, a challenge or something worse? I think it's a it's a huge problem. In fact, it is a crisis. I mean, we are you know, not even at the peak traffic time. I mean, it's only going to get worse from here. And the fact that we're seeing this major uptick just 40 days into the Biden administration, you know, really does show that uh, things have changed. Elections have consequences, right? And they matter. And even though Joe Biden and the Democrats are teeing up this uh, immigration reform bill, which is going to have no chance of getting through Congress, what, what the administration is doing via executive order and via the Justice Department and just prioritizing or, or not prioritizing illegal immigration and deportation and things of that nature has created a massive uh, problem for the Biden administration, <clears throat> which, um, you know, <laughs> highlights, I think, uh, a whole host of issues, not the least of which is the sort of hypocrisy in the media as Biden is opening up detention facilities, you know, kids in cages, as we were told, and what an abomination that was. And now they're reopening the same facilities. Now it's kids in containers and doesn't seem to be as much of a problem for Democrats. So, um, but but overall, yes, big problem, crisis, I, I, I would say, and that's, and only going to get worse from this point moving forward. Carl, did the president make this worse than it had to be, you think? You know, without a comprehensive approach, without laws that everybody understands, and when I say everybody, I mean everybody in Latin America and Asia, not just in the United States, they're getting signals. During the Democratic primary, several of the candidates basically said they wanted an open border. Joe Biden didn't say that, but he never really objected to it. You know, the the Washington Post today, their lead story quotes uh, Russell Holt, a senior official with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, saying, that the number of unaccompanied minors 
and, fam uh, and families are expected to be the highest numbers observed in over 20 years. So what's happening is that people south of the border have gotten the word that the United States is going to be more lenient and they're, they're flooding the border. The Biden administration at that point had the same dilemma that the Obama administration had and the Trump administration. What do you do? Do you process them or uh, refuse them entry or make it very difficult? The Biden administration is doing, according to the Washington Post, is going to turn it into an, to Ellis Island, release everybody within 72 hours. The, the, the analogy there is, is interesting because when Ellis Island was at its peak, this is in New York, the United States didn't even have immigration laws. You didn't even need a passport or visa to come here. You know, people are smart, Andy. They, you know, we have this gray area, uh, refugees, because if you're if you're immigrating to this country, you say I want to come to the United States and be a citizen. There's a line, there's paperwork, and it's a long line in Mexico. And people go to the consulate and they fill out the paper, and it takes years. If you say I'm a refugee, migrant is the term of art that the media uses. Well, that's a different. You have to show that you're being discriminated against or some hardship there that you allow emergency entrance. It seems like what's happening is everybody's is using that. It, it's not a loophole exactly because it's an important distinction, but people are using it who what they really want to do is just come to the United States and better their economic life and have freedom and have a good life. And this country was has always had that lure to people. But this designation, migrant or refugee, it's presented a problem to, to the Democrats and to the Biden administration. But they were so busy beating up on Trump for four years, they never really came up with a plan of their own and figured, all right, well, how are we going to handle this? Phil, you're over at the White House most days these days. So how is the Biden administration handling this? I'm really surprised to Cannon's point by just how unprepared they are after that Democratic primary where a number of candidates were talking about open borders. It doesn't seem that they have a plan in place. I was at the White House on Monday when uh, the new DHS secretary, uh, Mayorkas, was there. And he talked a lot about um, how... DHS has been dismantled by the previous administration and how he had to rebuild things from scratch. Um, but yet, you know, uh, the next day I, I asked Jen Psaki, um, why has Biden not nominated a, uh, a someone to run ICE, someone to run uh, Customs and Immigration, a number of these lower positions? Why, you know, the Senate has to confirm, you know, Senate has uh, an opportunity to confirm them. That's not going to stop him from naming these people who are ostensibly very important. And she didn't have an answer. She also didn't have an answer um, for the comment that Mayorkas made when he said, uh, he said that the message was, we are not saying don't come. We are saying don't come now. That, that does not seem, uh, you know, <laughs> like if, if you are trying to better your life and you're trying to come to this country, um, I, I think that you might be a little impatient. But the other thing here is, you know, uh, but Phil, they're saying they're saying I'm not coming now. I'm coming tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> coming, coming next week. And what's so interesting is um, like while we certainly see what looks like a crisis, you know, we have thousands of migrants crossing, you know, we are looking at the possibility of tens of thousands of unaccompanied children coming. Um, you know, the administration seems to want to say there's there's no crisis, no crisis whatsoever, um, because you know we we are being much more compassionate, even though we're using a lot of the same facilities, even though uh, the process is very similar to the previous administration. And so they continue to say that there's no crisis, but 
we got mixed messaging from the president himself uh, when on Tuesday um, I shouted a question. I shouted, is there a crisis at the border, sir? Because you don't see Biden that often. They sort of uh, whisk him away after he's done with his remarks. And he did said, your best Sam Donaldson impression? Did my best uh, Sam Donaldson. And he said, uh, 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 no, there's nothing we can't handle. God help us. Which kind of begs the question, well, does that mean that there's a crisis that we can handle? Or no, there's no crisis? Um, it sounds to me, Phil, like he's saying they need God's help. It's yeah. that it big a like problem. They, it sounds like they need divine intervention. <laughs> this early in the Biden administration, I think that this is pretty significant. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Unemployment is high. And they don't have a handle on the southern border. Tom? You know, they they also, Annie, real quickly, are talking about reunification, like letting unaccompanied minors come across and then reunifying the families here in the United States. In other words, not sending the kids back to be unified with their families, but bringing the families here. So there are plenty of signals that the Biden administration is pursuing, to Carl's point, like there's minimal, minimal, uh, you know, deportations. So it's almost like a de facto open border policy. Um, and again, I'm not sure how long that's going. To, I'm not sure how long that's going to be a tenable position for them to have as an administration. It does seem like the incentives are just so out of whack here and that it really seems to encourage children to cross the border because Children seem to be ushered in, will be placed with families. I think that's part of, of what he says he's going to do. So the, the, the visuals from this, uh, let alone the, the real human toll, are going to be really hard. I mean, Carl, is, is he going to end up uh, paying a big political price for this, you think, or, or, or not? Andy, I, I, don't, I don't know about the politics of it yet. I, I, I do know that it, the Democrats spent... You know, the out-of-power party is, is given some leeway to criticize. We all know that. But, you know, the, the Democrats were never really <laughs> that much out of power. And the, the, the idea that the, they don't have an immigration policy yet, you know, that, that's the bigger problem here. You know, this thing at the border, nobody expected Joe Biden to wave a magic wand and people <clears throat> would stop coming or the people who would come would be, have all their papers in order and everything. But... What, what's the Democrats' solution? They now control the Senate very tenuously. They control the House. They control the White House. What, what is their solution to the United States' questions about immigration policy? I won't say crisis or, you know, I won't even say it's a problem. But what is their answer? You wind up a Democrat, you, give them, you buy them a beer in a bar, I mean, halfway through the bar, through the beer, uh, oh, it's all Trump's fault. Well, that's going to wear thin. It's already wearing thin. They're going to have to have, what is their policy? towards, you know, there are 128 million people in Mexico. They're our closest neighbor. Uh, there's, we have Canada to the north. Are we going to be one country? Are we going to, are they, are they saying borders don't matter? Or are they, or are they saying we need to have border integrity? You, you can't, you can't even really get them to talk about it. And I think that's going to, I think at some point that's going to kick in and, and the public's going to demand answers to these there's, questions. But, but Carl, there's two things. I mean, the Democrats do have an immigration proposal for immigration reform. Right. So that's their policy. That's what they want to see enacted through Congress. But what's happening is the sort of on the ground realities of the first 40 days of the Biden administration, the signals that have been sent because they wanted to basically undo all of Trump's what Trump did on immigration. They want to tear down the wall, stop the money flowing to the wall, 
you know, <clears throat> change all the incentives, etc. But to Andy's point, you know, Trump Trump mentioned this at a CPAC speech about, you know, the, the coyotes are back in business. And you had this awful car crash uh, where this, you know, SUV with 25 illegal immigrants jammed in there and, I, and 15 of them died, I think. I mean, it was a horrendous, horrendous car crash, including a young 15-year-old. So, I mean, there's there's a real human cost here, and it's not necessarily – I think conservatives will make the argument, Republicans will make the argument, this is not very compassionate. You know, people are getting going to continue to get hurt, especially children, by the policies that have been put in place. And so maybe there will be a political cost to it. I certainly – Democrats, like everything these days, Democrats are all in favor of it. Republicans are against it. And, and you know, independents are probably somewhere in the middle and, and – open to being persuaded in one direction or another based on who makes the better argument and what the events show. If there's another, if you, if you continue to have these horrible stories about kids being abused and, and dying trying to cross the border, I mean, that's going to, uh, that's going to sway public opinion. It's interesting that, that Biden has lived through this too. I mean, Biden was vice president in 2014 during that border crisis. This isn't exactly new to him. It seems that he should have at least had um, some plans ready to go day one. Obviously, he's not going to get something through Congress, but the executive stance on this in terms of how you are going to apply the laws that are already on the books has a has a big effect. And when you're getting mixed messaging from the administration, um, you know, a, a bureaucrat that a migrant doesn't know and has never seen before uh, is is not going to sway them with some little noted statement in the White House press briefing, but uh, a statement from Joe Biden saying, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's not a good idea to cross our border right now. You know, perhaps uh, perhaps that would have some staying power, but, you know, it, it's hard to see how they couldn't have seen this coming. Well, let's turn to the conflict within the GOP. Last week, uh, the president spoke at CPAC, and uh, this week, the Wall Street Journal came out after the former president pretty hard, blaming Trump for the loss of those two Senate seats in Georgia, which handed the majority to the Democrats. So, Phil, tell us about uh, your conversation you had with uh, Senator Rubio. Uh, what's he thinking of, and what is this? Uh, it's not bleeding heart conservatism. It's not compassionate conservatism. It's something else. But I want to know why it's different and why I'm hearing about it now. This time it's common good conservatism. And with Rubio, it's clear that uh, he walked away from his loss in 2016 and started thinking about why it was that Trump won the nomination. And the lesson that he has uh, gotten and the one that he has tried to turn into policy is essentially that people identified viscerally with Donald Trump. Uh, because of his anti-elitism stance and because he was diagnosing the problems that they were seeing in their life every day. And so Rubio is walking away from the Trump administration and the Trump years saying American carnage is real. And so while Trump made promises about bringing back you know, those factories, about standing up to China, um, Rubio has tried to make plans. And so his common good conservatism is a change from the more libertarian versions of conservatism, which stresses a limited government and a free market at all costs, where Rubio is saying this free market has lent itself to globalism, which has sort of uh, seen these factories unbolted and sent overseas. And it's also 
uh, weakened us in the face of China. And so his project is in a simplified way that he likely would sort of disagree with, but for all intents and purposes is true, is he's providing uh, the plans that would address a lot of the promises that, uh, that Trump made. And clearly, Marco Rubio is a pretty ambitious guy. Um, so the thoughts are that he's been putting together the, uh, the policy platform that uh, he would run on if he tried to become president in 2024. Yeah, well, listen, you know, let's take Trump out of it for a minute. Feels right that, you know, Rubio take lost Trump to Trump out of it? Let's take Trump out of it for a minute. <laughs> R- R- I guess that's like saying, let's take the iceberg out of the Titanic's <laughs> maiden voyage. But but uh, it's a pretty good ship. Hey, look, we're in New York. Here, here's, the, here's the thing. Rubio lost this guy, and he lost to him in Florida. Rubio... I think he won the, I'm remembering this off the top of my head, he won the Minnesota caucus, he won the Puerto Rico primary. I was there in Puerto Rico, that's how I remember it. But he could, how does he lose to this guy? He's a, he's an attractive candidate, uh, a party that, that knows it can't just be an all-white party well, anymore. Just a minute, Tom, just a minute. <laughs> and I, I know what you're going to say, so just hold on. What am on. I going to say? What am oh, I going to say? Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> so, so, so there's a lot of reasons he lost, you know. Jeb Bush super PAC spent a hundred million tarring and feathering. Chris Christie went after him. He froze in the headlights like a deer in the headlights in New Hampshire. He had these. He probably wasn't ready yet, but he was. He was a candidate that that would have been able. You know, people thought broaden the Republican appeal. Then Trump comes comes in and he broadens the appeal. Nobody saw that coming. Um, with, but but Trump doesn't have a theory. Trump's not a theorist. He's not an intellectual. He doesn't. He, he doesn't have ideas the way normally that term's understood he kind of he senses people's frustration and plays to it and some of that frustration and the democrats want to say it's all racism very little of its racism in my view it's economic frustration there was a fascinating story the washington post did about they looked up maybe three or four hundred people who were arrested january 6th in the capitol and um about about more than half of them had economic distress in their lives, bankruptcies, housing foreclosures, job losses. Um, you know, instead of white privilege, which is very much in the elite press, these people are thinking how they're aggrieved. They hadn't had a raise. You know, the macroeconomics were that working people hadn't had a raise in 18 years or 20 years when Trump selected, and he played to that. And and what. What Rubio is saying is that the Republican Party has a future. It's got to understand um, what working people are going through. And it's not always, you know, the answer, the, the Arthur Laffer, you know, Ronald Reagan answer, the Stephen Moore answer, Phil writes about this, you know, deregulation, more tax cuts. Well, at some point, there are inefficiencies in capitalism. There are, there are things the system isn't working to help. And the government... Um, and that's the government's role is to get in there and, and, you know, do some guidance, not not socialism, but but fix some rights, right some wrongs. And I've written about this for Real Clear Politics. You can Google my stories. I mean, some of the people who are most in favor of capitalism, these rich venture capitalists, have done the most to undermine it. And, and, and you know, these obscene salaries, these layoffs, this fetish, the, the idea of a free market for if you're a Republican can't be that it's the religion, that the free market is the religion, the people work to serve it. It has to be the other way around. Arthur Brooks, who ran the American Enterprise Institute for years, said, would point out to audiences, 
Capitalism is the greatest engine for reduce, re- getting people out of poverty in the history of the world. That's its purpose. If that's not its purpose, or if it goes a, a rail, off the rails, then the government ought to reach in there with the, and, and, and nudge it back. That's what Marco Rubio is saying. And I think if the Republican Party has a future, and frankly, I think if you're going to, if, if capitalism has its future, if, if these people, Phil's generation, are going to embrace it, that has to be the message. I think Rubio is right on the money here. <laughs> are you finished? Uh, finally. That was long. Sorry, that was a Fidel Castro link. <laughs> yeah, defense of capitalism. <laughs> I just want to point out that when I, when I was writing about uh, Rubio's common good capitalism, I had to take my framed picture of Milton Friedman. I had to put it over so that he wouldn't see me writing about uh, this government <laughs> interference, this, this heresy. But so, Tom, we, we keep interrupting you. That's all right. So they took a couple of different straw polls at CPAC this past weekend. All right, one with Donald Trump in the running, one without. Didn't matter. Rubio was at like 1%. I, I dare say he may have missed his moment. Um, I'm not sure that Rubio is going to reemerge as the, with the star power and the juice inside the Republican Party that he had four years ago. And he was. You know, it, it's funny. I interviewed Rubio in 2016. He was here in Chicago. It was at the 1871, which is like a tech incubator. And he had a great shtick. And up until that New Hampshire debate, if you remember, everybody was talking about Rubio was one of the best debaters and he was quick on his feet. And then, you know, Chris Christie basically stabbed him in the chest and he stood there and and that was the end of it. The next day he had people following around in robot costumes. I mean, it, it just literally like that, the narrative flipped on Rubio and he was done. Um, so I don't know if, I do think, Look, you heard Ted Cruz say this. You've heard other people say this. This is now the working class party. Republicans are the working class party. And, you know, this is not your grandfather's Republican Party. And, you know, screw the country club elites and bashing Ivy Leagues and all stuff. You know, I had Scott Jennings on my radio show last weekend. And Scott's a Republican strategist, CNN contributor, writes for USA Today. And, and he sort of took offense to that. He said, listen, you know, for Republicans to win the White House— Right. They need all of that, all of these folks. So now, you know, don't don't swing too far in the other direction and and say, we don't want the country club Republicans. We don't want you. You're no longer part of this party because, you know, there are plenty of country club Republicans in the suburbs of Atlanta and Philadelphia and all those other places where the Republican Party, had they been able to bring in some more of those folks just a, a few weeks ago, Donald Trump would still be president. So. I think that's a valid point. I mean, I do think Trump has changed the party in the sense that it has now been reoriented towards the working class. That's probably a good thing and and for, for Republicans. And you've seen that pay dividends across, uh, across racial lines, right? Hispanics, African-Americans, it's more focused on economics and economic opportunity for, you know, wage earners, etc. But I think for Republicans to, to win nationally, they are going to need to bring, uh, you know, some of those moderates and country club Republicans back in the fold. Now, Rubio might be a guy who can do that because he's he, he does have sort of the charisma. So I think that the jury might still be out on him as far as, you know, but but right now, as far as the base of the party is concerned, if, if that's uh, straw poll at CPAC means anything, Rubio's, uh, he's at the bottom looking up. 
Well, since you brought up the CPAC straw poll, um, they do this uh, every time, and uh, they ask uh, them about who they want for president next cycle. This time only President s- Ron Paul is that what you're saying? President? No, Ron- no. But this this I, this I <laughs> thought was he served four terms or something. Right. President Patrick Buchanan. <laughs> yeah. So, but but this is interesting. Only 68 percent of the people who attended thought that uh, Trump should run again. And he won the poll, but he only got 55% of the vote, which seems struck and, me as a low number. And 95% of, of Republicans agreed with his policies. I know. So can you have Trumpism without Trump? And is he not really going to be the king and not maybe not even the kingmaker that he seems to uh, want to be? Carl? Well, I, I think Trumpism is Trump. I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's any ideology there. Yeah, he won one election in which he didn't even get a plurality of the votes. He lost his next election. Uh, when he left, he made sure on his way out the door that the Senate went re- went Democratic by sabotaging two uh, candidates in Georgia. Um, he he has no he has nothing approaching a platform. I you know we were in Cleveland four years ago, and he gave this speaking of Fidel Castro length speeches. Uh, you know. 75 minutes on American carnage. Uh, the only thing he said he'd do is he'd stop all the bad stuff. There would be no more violence in the cities. There'd be no more trade deals. You know, he he doesn't he didn't have an approach to governance that is, is sustainable for him, let alone something you could transfer to another candidate. But what Tom's talking about here, I, I agree with completely. If the Republican Party um, wants to win another national election and get 50% of the vote plus one, it has. It can't. It can't see ninety-five percent of the African American vote. It can't. Certainly can't see the Asian vote. It can't allow. It can't. It has to get forty or forty-five percent of the Latino vote, which George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan did. Not not lower. Um, and it's got to re- appeal to working class whites and and the country club Republicans. And when a country these people don't belong in country clubs, they're moderate to right of center Republicans. It needs all those people. That's the coalition. We've Bush did it in 2004. That's the last time it was done. It can be done again, but it can't be done with Donald Trump. Well, and, it, and it can't. I don't. And I don't think it can be done. I think. I think allowing your party to be portrayed, albeit by a lazy media and its enemies, as a as a white party, is not sustainable. I think. I I've said this before. The next Republican ticket won't have two white males on it. It may not have one white male on it. It has to expand itself demographically as well. But Carl, yes, I mean, it is, it is unfair slash untrue to say that Donald Trump didn't have a platform. You can say he was shitty at governing. Wait, wait, Tom, Tom, okay, but- Tom, first of all, you can't use that word. What? Sec- shitty. <laughs> Secondly, Why? I just think it's not kosher. I, oh, but but Tom, he literally didn't have a platform. He ran for re-election and he told the GOP, "We don't need a platform." That wasn't because of the pandemic. What? That was because of his ego. So you're saying re-election? Yes. But when he when he ran for election in 2016, he absolutely had a platform on immigration, on trade, on foreign policy. I mean, he really he had substantive things that he talked about that none of the other Republicans were talking about in the same way, certainly. Now, I agree. He tried to run on all those same things in 2020 and basically say, look at all I've done thing. You know, we, we need to keep keep making America great or whatever. 
and it wasn't enough of a forward-looking vision to overcome, you know, his personality and all the things that people ended up not liking about him. But but he absolutely had a platform when he first ran, and now that platform has become the basically the mainstream of the GOP. I mean, as the CPAC straw poll, those are I mean, those are hardcore conservatives, obviously, but but by and large, the stuff that he talked about is now where the Republican Party is. All right. Well, I want to move on, but I, I've got a quiz before we do. Okay. There have been 37 CPAC polls since uh, they started in 1974. Um, who do you think has won more CPAC polls than anybody else? Ron Paul. Wrong. I feel like John McLaughlin. Wrong. Carl, any guess? Wrong. Issue one. <laughs> All right. You guys Ron ready? Ron Paul won like four of them, didn't he? Did he? The honor. Goes. Wait, 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 wait. Phil. Phil, you got a guess? Got a guess? Matt Schlapp is the winner of every presidential seat. <laughs> the answer you is. You say, m- like Pat Robertson, who are you going to say? The answer is Mitt Romney. <laughs> he has won it four times 2007, <clears throat> 8, 9, and in 2012. Uh, second place, three way tie Ronald Reagan, Ron Paul, and Jack Kemp. So, not really. That's how you knew. Uh, For for our listeners who don't know, Andy's done a documentary on Jack Kemp, the late, great Jack Kemp. So, so you were attuned to this. I'm a big Jack Kemp fan, and uh, it shows two things. I think it shows how much conservatism has changed, uh, but it also shows how wrong CPAC has been time and time again. Andy, it also shows you how much Mitt Romney's changed. Back That's true. <laughs> right, fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, we, I want to move on um, and talk about this HR one. It's the House bill. Uh, it's described as a voting rights and campaign finance bill. Uh, here's some of what it would do: it would mandate mail-in voting. It would set ballot return dates. Limit how states draw congressional districts. Really, what it does is it takes a lot of the power that's at the state level. Uh, to control elections, and shifts it over to the federal government. So, Tom, is this a good idea? Has it got any legs? And what does it say also about the filibuster? This couldn't pass, I guess, without in the Senate without them changing the filibuster rules. Well, if you want to see the the arguments for and against it, you can look at the Real Clear Politics uh, front page. We've run a number of articles on H.R. 1 over the last few days. And today, which is Friday, March 5th, you can read um, – there's a piece from uh, CNN by Norm, Norm Eisen, uh, Richard Painter, and Jeffrey Mandel talking about why HR1 is needed. And then you've got David Harsanyi uh, of National Review, why he calls uh, HR1 an authoritarian outrage um, because it's going to basically shift all that power to the federal government, mandate states on, on – and, and basically lock in a lot of the changes that were made – uh, for, you know, theoretically to for the pandemic. So um, I think it is a huge deal. And and it is you've seen the reaction in the states uh, by Republican legislatures that are trying to basically, you know, sort of re-strengthen um, the the voting protocols, which, of course, the the Democrats are calling, you know, this is voter suppression. We're heading back to Jim Crow, you know, all these uh, you know, showing IDs and, and shortening early voting periods, et cetera, et cetera. I personally, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, I'm, I'm on board with the Carl Cannon and I will, I will co-sign. So it's the Cannon-Bevin election reform bill, which mandates 
This is the national. This is what should happen. <laughs> we do away with all early voting. Okay. Absentee balloting is still allowed, of course. Tuesday becomes a national holiday. And in fact, we have the entire weekend. So it's you, voting starts on Friday. The polls are open 24-7 for Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And it's a, and it's a national holiday for those four days. And th- that, that's your early voting period. If you can't find a way to get to a location and vote when you have four days to do it, and everything else will be closed. Um, <clears throat> that's what we should move to, I think, because I, there are pl- plenty of problems with with the way that we've been doing, you know, mail-in voting. Now, early voting is like what six weeks long or something. I mean, the campaign isn't even; they haven't even had debates by the time uh, you know a lot of people had already started voting. So, Tom, you um, left out the you left out the my favorite feature of the Canon Bevan voting rights bill. What's that? Mandated bipartisan picnics on Tuesday evening. <laughs> <laughs> with fireworks and hot dogs, uh, veggie burgers for the people, those people so inclined. It's a celebration of American democracy. That's how we, instead of just this Manichaean bipartisan hate fest by the duopoly, I'm changing the culture of it, not just the mechanics of it, Tom. Amen. And Chick-fil-A staff are going to run all of the polling places, so things are going to be really smooth. <laughs> if, if you get Chick-fil-A and Disney in there, you wouldn't have zero fraud. <laughs> So, Phil, do you think that they, uh, because this has no chance of passing the Senate with 60 votes, obviously. Wait, which, wait, their bill or the ben, Bevan Cannon bill? Um, <laughs> I, think, I think ours would sail through, man. <laughs> Just a couple things about the features of H.R. 1. I mean, it calls for things that any good government advocate ought to favor. Nonpartisan redistricting commissions. Um, really? You, you think know, everyone is in favor of that? Would, well, okay, I won't say everyone, but... but I said any no. I said any advocate of good government should favor. Um, yeah, the, uh, you know, requiring dark money groups to reveal their sources, new ethics rules on public servants. I mean, there's, it's not just all, you know, Democratic Party politics. There's some things in there that advocates, the reformers, have been calling for 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 many years. The the national. The part about the national voter registration and the mail-in standards being mandated by the federal government, though, that's that's a sticking point for the simple reason it may not be constitutional. You know, the Constitution pretty clearly leaves these decisions to the states, and so I think it's going to be challenged. And there's some things in there that you'd think Democrats would want to would have to negotiate on um, ballot harvesting, for one thing. You know that that's not. In the bill and where it's contemplating the bill, it's allowed. It should be, I believe, outlawed. But, but th- there are things in the bill. It's you know Republicans look at this. Bill. Oh, it's a Democrat. Yeah, the Democrats Carl, are doing I mean, this because to inevitably get, to in it, every get bill, it. there's going to be some stuff that's good and bad. I think we can we can. What I'm, with what, that. But what I'm what I'm saying is though many of the features of it are what reformers on both sides have been calling for for many years. That that's the point I wanted to make. And the other point is that I'm not sure it's constitutional anyway. Canon Bevan outlaws ballot, ballot harvesting. Yes, uh, that's yeah, that's true. <laughs> What's interesting is on the right, currently the integ- uh, the election integrity issue is sort of sucking up all of the oxygen. This is the defining issue just a couple of months since the election. And something that I've been surprised by is you have ultra conservative, social conservative groups that for their entire existence have done one thing. They focused on one issue uh, and now suddenly they're hearing from their donor base, well, you know, we are looking forward to helping you 
for instance, uh, the Susan B. Anthony list there, an anti-abortion group, they're hearing from their donors, we want to help you continue the fight on the abortion front, but we're not comfortable writing these big checks to your organization to help you win elections if we think the election itself is rigged. That's a sort of um, mentality that we saw in Georgia, where you had a number of Republican voters who thought that November was rigged, so they weren't encouraged to come out and vote in that um, January special election. A lot of interest groups on the right are feeling that same thing. And so you have the Susan B. Anthony list as one example, uh, which traditionally just focuses on social issues, now focusing on election integrity. Uh, This is sort of the vortex, I think, that is sucking all of the energy on the right into And right now it's being channeled against H.R. 1 because Republicans think that, yeah, the system could be changed, uh, but we don't want Democrats to rewrite the rewrite the rules in a way that would disadvantage us. So, Tom, what happens, though, if they can they pass this? uh, You know, they they can overturn the filibuster, I guess, and get this through. Uh, That has long term consequences long beyond this bill itself. Um, It sets out entirely new precedent for the way the Senate would operate. Do you think the Democrats are willing to go that far to get this bill through? Yeah. I mean, my guess is no, but they're look, whether it's HR one or whether it's immigration or, or whatever, you know, at some point Democrats are going to have to confront the filibuster and whether they want to, whether they want to repeal it now, Maybe they maybe they never get to that point, um, but but certainly there is so much pressure from the left on you know and you you see this you hear it you read it where you know progressives are like listen and even on this minimum wage it's like well, you know what's the point of having the White House in both both houses of Congress if if we can't get anything done like we were elected to get stuff done let's get let's change the rules do whatever we got to do. To, to get these policies through because that's what people wanted when they when they voted for us. Um, and so I think you're going to continue to see pressure. Will they do it for this bill in particular? I don't know. I don't think so, but I could be wrong. Maybe it'll come on immigration, but again, you know, you're looking at Joe Manchin and maybe Kirsten Sinema in the in the in the Senate as the deciding votes on whether um, whether that takes place or not. And so it's it's up to them. Again, you know, Manchin seems to be holding the the you know centrist line a little bit to me, but but there's no you know there's no telling when he might decide or I don't I don't think he'll be pressured into it. He doesn't seem like a guy who's going to bend to pressure from the left, but at some point he might there might be an issue in front of him where he says, you know what, this is important enough to me that we need to make this change. Yeah, Andy, I would add to that. You know, there's Joe Biden. Excuse me. Joe Manchin is wants to support Biden. He's looking for ways to do that. I I just think on, on immigration, uh, which is we don't know where that's going, but also some of these other things, Puerto Rico statehood, you know, packing the court, some of these outlandish things that have come from the left. Manchin wants no part of that. But on on election reform, you know, that's like I say, that's a good government thing. I think that may be a place Democrats want to make a stand, and I don't. Joe Manchin has nothing against, you know, <laughs> there's nothing in this bill that would particularly offend him. So this may, uh, this may be a, a good place for them to say, all right. But if they, I mean, if they do it here, right, that opens the, that opens right. the gate. 
That's right. Well, we'll leave it there. I want to thank my guests, Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and Phil Wegman. You can always find out more on realclearpolitics.com. And as I always do, I urge you to visit Real Clear Politics, read at least one piece from a publication or, or writer with whom you disagree. Uh, it's good spring cleaning exercise for your mind. Till next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Allworth.